1: Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books Network.
0: I'm your host, Lin Shan Jiang. Today, I'm so delighted to have Miss Susan Chen Egan with us here on air. Susan, would you like to say hi to the listeners? Hi. Susan Chen Egan is an independent scholar. She's the author of Latter-day Confucian, Reminiscence of William Wong, 1893-1980. to 1980 co-author of A Pragmatist and His Free Spirit, The Half-Century Romance of Hu Shi and Edith Clifford Williams, and co-translator of Wang Aiy's The Song of Everlasting Sorrow, a novel of Shanghai, among other books. Today, we are going to talk about her new book, A Companion to the Story of the Stone, A Chapter-by-Chapter Guide, co-authored with Bai Xianyong. Bai Xianyong is an acclaimed fiction writer and a professor emeritus of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I'm right now at. His books include Taipei People and Crystal Boys. He has taught the story of the stone for decades and is the author of a popular three-volume guide in Chinese on which this book is based. The story of the stone, also known as The Dream of the Red Chamber, is widely held to be the greatest work of Chinese literature beloved by readers ever since it was first published in 1791. The story revolves around the young scion of a mighty clan who, instead of studying for the civil servants' examinations, frolics with his maidservants and girl cousins. The narrative is cast within a mythic framework in which the protagonist's rebellion against Confucian strictures is guided by a Buddhist monk and a Taoist priest. Embedded in the novel is a biting critique of imperial China's political and social system. A Companion to the Story of the Stone, a chapter by chapter guide, is a straightforward guide to a complex classic that was written at a time when readers had plenty of leisure to sort through the hundreds of characters and half a dozen subplots that weave in and out of the book's 120 chapters. Each chapter of The Companion summarizes and comments on each chapter of the novel. The Companion provides English-speaking readers whether they are simply dipping into this novel or intent on a deep analysis of this masterpiece with a cultural context to enjoy the story and understanding its world. The book is key to David Hawkes and John Minford's English translation of The Story of the Stone or The Dream of the Red Chamber. This book also includes an index that gives the original Chinese names and terms. So now let's get started with the interview. In the Chinese-speaking world, the story of the stone or the dream of the red chamber is included in the four classics of China, along with Water Margin, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and The Journey to the West. Since the story of the stone is in the Chinese literary canon, almost all of us have some encounters with the novel. For example, I was required to read the novel in high school and had to take quizzes based on the novel. This is also why I didn't like the novel back then. Later, I met this novel again through the discussions of modern writers such as Zhang Ailing and then Bai Xianyong, and their discussions raised my interest to revisit the story of the stone. So I'm actually very curious what's your experience, like reading experience, and your encounters with the story of the stone? The Dream of the Red Chamber. Thank you, Jiang Linshan.
2: I grew up in the Chinese community in the Philippines and first read the novel in Chinese when I checked it out from our high school library. I could totally relate to the Jia clan in the story because I lived in a large household of some 20 people with my grandmother, aunts, uncles, and cousins. My widowed grandmother ruled the roost just like Grandmother Jia in the novel, and two of my aunt's married men whose fathers had concubines, which naturally led to a lot of the rivalry and bitterness described in the novel. But all I was interested in was the love relationship between Jia Baoyu and his two girl cousins, how he falls in love with Lin Daiyu, but is tricked into marrying Xue Baocai Skipping over the poems and anything else I did not understand, I probably ended up reading only a third of the novel. I first read the Lou Meng from beginning to end for the first time after all five volumes of the English translation by David Hawkes and John Minford came out in 1986. My husband, Ron Egan, who was then teaching Chinese literature at Harvard, bought the entire set I was enchanted, but there were many things in the novel that did not make sense to me. Professor Bai Xianyong happens to be Ron's first Chinese teacher at UC Santa Barbara back in the 1960s. And I came to know him quite well after Ron, at his recommendation, returned to teach at UCSB. When Professor Bai told me that his Honglo Meng lectures at National Taiwan University was available online, I watched the series with a copy of the Chinese original as well as the English translation in front of me and felt that I finally understood the novel. For instance, I never understood why Lin Daiyu has so many fans among Chinese readers. To me, Dai Yu is much too sensitive and snotty. Professor Bai explained, Dai Yu is hypersensitive because she feels profoundly insecure. As an orphan, she's totally dependent on the goodwill of her wealthy relatives, especially on the affection of grandmother Jia. Furthermore, even though she and Jia Baoyu are in love, Marriages in pre-modern China were arranged by family elders, and there was no one to speak for her. I had also thought that it was incredibly cruel for Grandmother Jia to marry Jia Baoyu to Baochai rather than Daiyu, even though she knows very well that he and Daiyu are deeply attached to each other. Professor Bai explained that whoever marries Jia Bao would not only be Bao wife, she would have to preside over the Jia household, a rancorous establishment of several hundred people. This is a role that Dai Yu is temperamentally unfit to perform, whereas the affable and unflappable Bao Chai is perfectly suited. In the eyes of Grandmother Jia, it would have been utterly reckless to marry Jia Baoyu to Dai Yu. Until Professor Bai explained this crucial point, large chunks of the novel were mystifying to me.
0: It was like someone turning on an electric light. Thank you so much for sharing that wonderful experience. So just a note for the English listeners who do not understand Chinese, Honolmong is the Chinese name of this novel we are talking about, of course. So the English translation is The Dream of the Red Chamber, or the other name is Shi Ji*. So the English translation is The Story of the Stone. And... Yes, I feel that love triangle you were talking about was something that attracted a lot of people to watch this kind of romantic drama. But at the same time, there are, of course, all kinds of deeper meanings to it. And your interpretation just now actually bring me back to some of the memories of reading this novel, but also intrigue me again to read even more. So now let's come to the second question of this whole writing of the book. So how do you come up with the idea to write a chapter by chapter guide? And how do you carry out this book project? Does the pandemic influence this book project? Well, it so happened that when Professor Bai,
2: Chinese guide to the *Hong Meng* came out in Taipei in 2016, Ron and I were there. We were invited to a dinner party celebrating the book launch at which People urged him to also produce an English version. I volunteered to assist him. He graciously offered to let me be the first offer. I felt Professor Bai is uniquely qualified to talk about the Hong Lomong. He has been a lifelong fan of the novel, and he taught Hong Lomong at UC Santa Barbara for nearly 30 years before retiring as professor emeritus. Himself an accomplished fiction writer, he has a profound understanding of how the novel is held together. He can show us some of the scaffolding holding up its illusion of reality. Moreover, the honglo Meng is to a large degree, a Buddhist allegory of how a sensitive young man reaches enlightenment. As a long-time Buddhist devotee, Professor Bai understands all the Buddhist symbolisms. Furthermore, there are lots of references in the novel to the theater and specifically to Kunchi. Professor Bai is a kunqi aficionado who may have single-handedly revived this art form in China over the past 20 years. Lastly, he has been an early advocate of gay rights. Homoeroticism and homosexuality in the novel does not faze him. He's therefore in a position to perceive many themes and motifs in the novel that others might have missed. So I set out to reduce Professor Bai's three volume guide in Chinese to one volume in English. We decided to have two sections to each chapter, a very concise summary, quote unquote, and a section that we simply called, quote unquote, comments that point out how the characters in the chapter are related to each other and provides whatever Cultural explanations we feel are needed for the average English readers to understand what happens in the chapter. We had to be very disciplined to keep the length of our chapters under two pages or 700 words each. Along with an introduction, a key to recurring characters, a selected bibliography and an index, the whole book comes to 277 pages, light enough for a college student to carry around campus. After Professor Bai retirement from UCSB in 1995, he has been living mostly in Taipei, with frequent trips to Hong Kong and mainland China, but he always returned to Santa Barbara in the summer to escape the Taipei heat. I would wait until he was back in Santa Barbara, then travel there from the Bay Area where Ron and I now live to go over the drafts with him. In the fall of 2019, Ron invited Professor Bai to give two lectures on the Hong Lomong at Stanford. It turned out to coincide with homecoming weekend at Stanford and the largest hall. Ron was able to secure had a maximum capacity of 300. There was a waiting list of people who could not get in. Professor Bai had the audience absolutely mesmerized. They lingered long after the lecture was over until we turned off the lights. Professor Bai stayed over several days at that time so that we could go over the final drafts. Luckily, Our manuscript was already accepted by Columbia University Press by the time COVID-19 struck. If anything, I'm quite convinced that the reason that the work on this book proceeded so smoothly and with such uncommon speed at the press was partly because with little distraction and nowhere to go, everyone involved was able to focus on the project. We are very pleased with how it turns out. On seeing the book for the first time, many people exclaim that it's beautiful. It also feels very nice
0: in the hand. Great. It's such an interesting experience that how you come up with this book with Professor Bai actually also reminds me of a lot of encounters I had with Professor Bai, because he's actually my favorite writer throughout time. And when I was still a master student in Tsinghua University, I actually went to Peking University to listen to his lecture about Peony Pavilion, which is one of the famous queen operas in China. And then, of course, I like his Taipei People a lot, that short story collection. And one of the short story is called Wandering in the Garden, Waking from a Dream. And the Chinese name is Jing Meng." And also that's one part of Peony Pavilion. And if you read that short story, of course, it's also quite heavily influenced by the story of the stone or the dream of the red chamber. So... I just feel so fascinated to hear all this experience, how you come up with a book. So now let's come into the guide now. As you introduced in the introduction, there were actually some controversies surrounding the authorship of the story of the stone or the dream of the red chamber. Is Cao Xie the sole writer of this book? It's really a question for us to ask maybe forever. So. Could you tell us something about the author of this novel and how do you handle this controversy in the guide?
2: Yes, the author of the Hong Meng*, Xia Xueqin, died around 1764. We do not know very much about him, but we know a great deal about his family because his grandfather, Cao Yin, was an important figure in 17th century China, during the reign of the Kangxi emperor. Cao Yin's grandfather was an imperial bodyguard and his mother was Kangxi's wet nurse, Naima, and Cao Yin became Kangxi's childhood playmate. After Kangxi ascended the throne in 1661, he appointed Cao Yin's father to the post of Imperial Textiles Commissioner in Nanjing, in charge of procuring textiles for the Imperial Court, whereupon the family moved from Beijing to the southern city of Nanjing. The Cao family held on to this lucrative post for three generations. The family played host to the Emperor on his southern tours four times. Everyone knew that Cao Yin served as Kangxi's spy in the South. However, after Kangxi died, the Cao family cast its lot with the wrong faction in the struggle for imperial succession and ended up having its assets seized by Kangxi's successor, the Yongzheng Emperor. Many episodes in the novel reflect this family history. Cao Xueqin was about 13 when the family lost its fortune. He spent the rest of his life in Beijing, barely making a living by selling his paintings while he worked on the Hongloumong. The novel was not printed until 1791, decades after his death. Copies of the first 80 chapters of his manuscript were widely circulated and survive to this day, but no complete copy of the last 40 chapters has ever been found. According to the preface of the 1791 first edition, the editors had to quote unquote, patch together the final third of the novel from some 20 chapters that they had found over the years and fragments of some other dozen or so chapters. Books published in pre-modern China were not punctuated. When in 1921, the first punctuated edition was being planned, the publisher of Yadong Suju asked the celebrated scholar and social reformer Hu Shi to write an introduction. Hu Shi was the man who, through his research, firmly established that the author was Cao Yin's grandson, Cao Xueqin, that it is an autobiographical novel. This was confirmed by the discovery of a manuscript with scribbled notes on the margin saying such things as, yes, this was exactly how it happened, or no, she wasn't like that showing that at least some of the episodes were based on real events. But also sparked a controversy by claiming that the last 40 chapters was simply forged or the strength of a poem from that period that seems to say that the last third of the novel was all written by one of the editors. And because some inconsistencies between the first 80 chapters and the last 40 chapters. As a writer of fiction himself, Professor Bai is convinced that the story is far too complicated for any significant portions of it to have been written by someone else. Nearly all the narrative threads left dangling in the first 80 chapters are resolved satisfactorily by the end of the novel. Although there are some inconsistencies in the style and there are some inconsistencies in the various episodes from the first 80 chapters to the last 40 chapters, the writing quality remains very high. Much of it is in fact brilliant. Furthermore, the deep compassion with which the author embraces humanity, as well as his unique ability to endow each character with a distinctive voice, remain consistent throughout. Something that would have been nearly impossible for anyone else to ape. As Professor Bai often says, if the last 40 chapters were forged, the forger would have to be a greater genius than Cao Xueqin. In fact, Professor Zhou Chezong of the University of Wisconsin calculated that the alleged forger would only have about four months to write the last 40 chapters. If he were such a genius, how come he never wrote another piece of fiction? That is not to say, however, that some portions of the last 40 chapters were indeed written by Gao E, the alleged forger, who was one of the editors. But for nearly 100 years, very few people in China doubted that they were from the same author. Now we must ask, why weren't the last 40 chapters more widely circulated? The author might still have been working on it when he died, or he might have feared that some of the politically sensitive references in the last third of the novel may get him into trouble with Kangxi's grandson, the Qianlong Emperor, who was notorious for his literary inquisitions. A guide to the Honglo-mong, simply mentions the existence of this controversy but sets it aside. There are also questions as to whether Shakespeare was the sole author of some of his plays or whether he wrote the plays at all, but these controversies have not prevented us from enjoying the plays because they move us and they have stood the tests of time. Similarly, We should not let the controversy over its authorship prevent us from enjoying the
0: Hong Lou Meng as a great piece of literature as a whole. Yeah, great. So now we come to another, I think, very interesting thing surrounded by the dream of the red chamber or the story of the stone. That is about the tension between so-called high literature and also popular literature. So I think in Qing Dynasty and also Ming Dynasty as well, usually novel as a literary form was considered something for entertainment. But of course, The Dream of the Red Chamber or The Story of the Stone has its very high literary value when it was written already. And of course, if we come to the contemporary time, there are all kinds of adaptations of The Story of the Stone there were all kinds of TV dramas and also contemporary dance and classical drama and also contemporary drama, all kinds of ways to actually popularize this particular novel. So I'm very curious, how would you classify the novel in terms of high literature and popular literature?
2: Yes, the Hong Hmong was written by a very literate person for his own amusement and that of his friends complete with a profusion of witty points. So one might say that it started out as high literature. However, the novel has many features that appeal to all strata of society. After its publication in 1791, the novel was so popular that by the early 19th century and few decades later, Prostitutes in Shanghai were calling themselves Lin Dai Yu or Xue Baocai. Soon, scenes from the novel was made into Peking opera and performed on the stage. By the early 20th century, cigarette packets were sold with color pictures featuring girls in the Hong mong And radio broadcast serialized the story for broadcasting. Thanks to the endorsement of Mao Zedong, who claimed to have read the novel five times and saw in it a tale of class struggle, the book was never banned in mainland China, not even during the Cultural Revolution, although it was briefly denounced as degenerate. There have since been many movies and television adaptations of the novel, so, that even Chinese who never set eyes on the Hong Lomong know its central plot and the main characters. Like other great works of art, this novel has breadth and depth. What we see is determined in large part by our field of vision. The man on the street can simply enjoy the story of the love triangle of how a mighty clan is brought low by greed and recklessness, and how a wealthy young man comes to renounce worldly pleasure and becomes a a monk, rather. But educated readers understand the significance of the poems. They see more connections and notice more nuances. Take Liu Laolao, for instance. We could all enjoy her as a character that makes us laugh. But Professor Bai also sees her as a Mother Earth figure who brings a breath of fresh air into the over-refined Jia household. At the end of the novel, Liu Laolao, this comical peasant woman, arranged a marriage between Xiao Jie and the son of a wealthy farmer, thus symbolically reconcile the ruling class with the good earth that sustained them. So I think we can say that the Hong Lomong is both high and low culture, <laughs> high and low literature. It's one of those uh, very rare masterpieces that appeal to everyone like Romeo and Juliet.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Since you mentioned Romeo and Julia, actually you talked a lot about the Western canon when you are writing this whole guide. So I'm wondering, how do you compare the story of the stone to all those novels in the Western canon in your book?
2: Yes, the Honglomong has a great deal in common with many novels in the Western canon. Like George Eliot's Middle March and Thackeray's Vanity Fair, the Honglomong seeks to portray an entire society in a sympathetic but unsentimental manner, incorporating its conformists, its rebels, its idealists, and pragmatists. We're never tired of hearing what can happen when people of all sorts are thrown together in a self-containing world. Like Joyce's Ulysses, Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, and countless other Western novels, the protagonist, is a man out of sync with the society in which he lives. Like Emily Bronte's Warring Heights, the novel features two eccentrics thrown together in childhood who become each other's soulmate and share a secret and consummated love that goes beyond the grave. The Hong Long Bong also features characters with whom readers can readily identify. At one point or another, we all feel we are misfits in our environment. Jia Baoyu is a sensitive young man who rebels against social pressure to conform. Lin Daiyu feels that she never belongs. Whereas Xue Baocai, comfortable in her skin, Tries to perform her duties while keeping out of everyone else's business. Bao Yu's half-sister, Jia Tan Chun, is determined to maintain her composure while she faces the ugly facts of life unflinchingly. The Hong Lomong ranks with the best of novels in the Western canon in its inventiveness its marvelous portrayal of everyday life and its insights into human nature. However, it has remained largely unknown to the Western reading public for several reasons. Until the English translation by Hawkes and Minford started to appear in the 1970s, there was no good translation in any Western language too late, in fact, to be incorporated into university humanity curricula, which were more or less set by the 1960s. The length of the novel is another deterrence. It's about four times the length of war and peace. In addition, Chinese names tend to confuse Western readers, and the story involves more than 400 characters in tangled relationships. What's more, to appreciate the story, the reader needs some understanding of traditional Chinese society. And to top it all, the novel is written to be reread. The significance of many episodes are not revealed until dozens of chapters later but how many people today are willing to reread a long novel several times over? Our guide is meant to help the average English readers who might be willing to give the book a try, if only to dip into a few chapters to see what it's all about.
0: You actually just mentioned the english translations of the story of the stone or the dream of the red chamber in the 1970s so there were actually several translations i mean complete translation of this novel back then so why do you choose the english translation by david hawkes and john minford to begin with hawkes and minford have
2: devised an ingenious way to help Western readers remember the large number of Chinese names in the novel. There are more than 400 named characters in the Hom Long Moon, not counting those identified only by their occupation. Even Chinese readers familiar with the main plot and some of the personalities could not keep all of them straight. Chinese names are notoriously difficult for Western readers partly because Chinese is a tonal language. Rendered in alphabets, crucial tonal distinctions have completely vanished. So that ma, 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 ma are all simply ma. The meanings attached to the names have likewise disappeared as are any class signifiers and common elements in the reading characters that might indicate that individuals belong to the same generation in the same clan. Thus Western readers are left with two or three perplexing sounds for a name with no clue as to even whether the name is masculine or feminine. David Hawkes and John Minford mix life a little issue for the Western readers by rendering the names of the main characters, the way they sound, but translate the names of servants loosely into English words. Thus, Jia Yi's maid, Xiren, becomes Aroma. Dai Yi's maid, Juan becomes Nightingale, much easier to remember. Names of actors and actresses are loosely translated into French words such as bijou, charmant, parfumé. Names of religious clerics are translated into Latin or according to Roman Catholic usage, so that we have sapienta, adamantina, mother Iohesia. Thus, a glance at the names would tell the Western readers something about their social position. David Hawkes was a distinguished professor at Oxford University. He loved the novel so much, he resigned his tenured position to devote 10 years of his life, translating the first 80 chapters of the Homo Translation of the last 40 chapters of the novel was completed by his student and eventual son-in-law, John Minford, who later taught at the Australian National University. There's no question that Hawkes and Minford did a superb job and the translation reads as if it were originally written in English. The Hawkes and Minford translation has often been criticized for being, quote unquote, too British, for making the Jia family members sound as if they were British aristocrats. Yet, precisely because the translators are British, attuned to the minute distinctions of a hierarchical society, and familiar with the way the upper class, Chinese or British, treat their servants, they are able to capture the nuances in this type of relationship in the novel. And servants constitute a large number <laughs> of this cast of hundreds in the novel. So that is very important.
0: Yeah. So we were just talking about the comparison between the guide and the Western canon and also the English translation. So it seems that this book really aimed at English readers. So I'm wondering, for readers who are fluent in Chinese language, like I am, (laughs) will we be learning anything from this guide as well?
2: As a novel was written some three centuries ago, Some of the episodes in the novel might be as puzzling to today's Chinese readers as they are to the English readers to whom this guide is meant. Chinese readers living in the 20th century, 21st century rather, might also find some of the unspoken assumptions and social custom in the novel very strange and might therefore find our explanations useful. Furthermore, reading the Hong Lomong in English, or even just reading our guide, has the additional benefit of, quote unquote, the familiarization, mo sheng hua. When a person is viewing something through the lens of some other culture than his own, he or she would notice things he had never been aware of before. It's like seeing things through the eyes of a child. Everything is marvelously new and fresh. Reading a novel with which one is familiar in another language has the effect of this de-familiarization of heightened awareness. I highly recommend trying this sometime. This novel should also be a boom for lazy readers of all backgrounds. Since we do not expect the average English readers to plunge wholeheartedly into this long novel at once, we made it easy for people to sample a few chapters that sounds interesting and read those first by providing them with the narrative and cultural context to do so for each chapter. Readers fluent in the Chinese
0: language may use the guide the same way. Very true. So now let's come to some of the content in the story of the stone and also your guide. So this novel is actually quite explicit in its treatment of sexuality, especially concerning homosexuality that we just mentioned. So how do you convey these ideas in the guide? The novel treats human sexuality in a
2: frank and straightforward way. Cao Xueqin appears to approve of all sexual manifestations, as long as it is not exploitative. Jia Baoyu himself has sexual relations with his female servant's aroma, as well as with at least one of his male friends, Qin Zhong. His feelings toward Qin Zhong is as deep as his feelings toward Lin Yu. There are many bisexual men in the novel, and instances of homosexuality are depicted matter-of-factly. Take the actor Jiang Yuhan. Jiang Yuhan is also known as Qi Guan or bijou, meaning little jewel in French, as Hawks could name him. For he is an actor trained to play female roles. We read that Jia Pao Yi first meets bijou at the drinking party. When Pao yi goes outside to pee, bijou follows him. As the two stand side by side under the eave, Bao Yi is overcome by the actor's good looks and impulsively gives his hand a squeeze. He then proceeds to break off a jade pendant from his fan and gives it to the actor as a gift. Then the two teenage boys each open up their gowns and exchange sashes, which are like underwear straps. Five chapters later, in chapter 33, we read that the actor has escaped from the household of his patron a prince who misses him so much he sends his chamberlain to look for him everywhere including at the Jia compound because he has heard that Jia Bao yi is friendly with the actor when Bao yi's father learns that his son is mixed up with an actor in competition with a prince thus jeopardizing the family's position at court he beats Bao yi almost to death Later in this book, we learn that the actor has become independently wealthy. He dropped his stage name of Bijou and reverted to his real name of Jiang Yuhan. But he couldn't bear to keep away from the stage. He now manages an opera troupe as a hobby and keeps on performing uh, on the stage, but only in male roles, which he obviously prefers. Watching him performing on the stage, Jia Yi thinks to himself that whoever marries this man will be a lucky girl. At the end of the novel, Jiang Yuhan ends up marrying Yi's beloved maid, Aroma. Now, how do we handle this complicated sexuality? Earlier in the book, in an episode involving Qin Zhong, with whom Pao Yi carried on homosexual relationship as we mentioned earlier. Uh, we explained in the comment section of that chapter that Confucianism is silent on the subject of homosexuality. To the extent that homosexuality was the courage in pre-modern China, it was considered a wasteful use of one's time and energy when a man could be producing sons to extend the family line. With social activities between the sexes strictly regulated, same-sex friendships flourished. Chinese literature abounds with stories of men devoted to each other. Although it is usually difficult to tell how much physical intimacy was involved. Many gestures that might be interpreted in the West as homoerotic such as hand-holding and placing an arm around another man's shoulder, are no more than acts of brotherly affection in Chinese culture. In the comments in chapter 33, in which the episode concerning the prince uh, sending a chamberlain to look for Zhang Yuhan appears, we explain that little boys sold by the impoverished parents to theatrical troops were often trained to act, talk, and sing like women. As such, they became objects of fantasy to their largely male audiences and often gained the patronage of wealthy men, and that some male actors who played female roles offered themselves as prostitutes. Cao Xueqin treats homosexuality matter of factly. And Chinese readers in general do not make a big fuss over it, so neither do we.
0: We merely put the episodes in their cultural contexts. Right, so actually there are all kinds of traditional Chinese culture involved in the original novel, including all the philosophical thoughts in Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, and also traditional Chinese medicine and also the Chinese calendar. So how do you handle all these various aspects that may be puzzling to the English readers?
2: Like homosexuality, we supply the readers what they need to know as the subject come up by commenting on the matter in the relevant chapter. I must confess that I learned a lot about traditional Chinese culture As I do the research, when I come to certain things, for instance, about Chinese medicine, you know, I would uh, read up on the subject about, you know, uh, how they're related to yin and yang and so forth. I was vaguely aware of the, you know, the connections, but I never quite know enough to pin it down and in the process of working on this guide. I learned a lot so that I can tell the readers uh, what Yin and Yang and Wu Xing and how they're related to, the, to bodily functions in Chinese concept medicine. So luckily, I was able to show what I wrote to Bai Xianyong, of course, and also people, for instance, in Chinese music to music specialists who know something about the subject so that we don't mislead the readers. This is one of the rewards of doing the book.
0: Yeah, definitely. I actually learned so much from listening to what you just said in this whole interview. So as we usually have this question for every interviewee, what is your next book project? After-
2: <laughs> ah, Unfortunately, my eyes have deteriorated so much in the last year. I become very tired after reading a page or two. Any book project that involves research is out of the question. I'm now in my mid to late 70s, and I feel I kind of uh, can relax and just take life uh, easily. i may try my hand at writing a memoir, mostly about uh, my family and growing up Chinese in the Philippines. I haven't yet decided if I were to do that, whether the book should be, the memoir should be in English or in Chinese. I may just write something for the benefit of my daughter and my nieces and nephews so that they
0: know a little bit about where their ancestors came from. Yeah, definitely. I'm so sorry to hear that your eyes are deteriorating, but you can definitely try just narrating everything orally and have someone <laughs> write it down for you. And I think it shouldn't be just for your uh, offsprings. We also would like to read it, so.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. I'm highly honored to be interviewed by Shan. Um, it helped me pull a lot of
0: things together. And I hope this will uh, get more people to read the Lobong. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for this interview. And I also learned so much from you. So thank you so much again, and hope to see you soon and hope to see the memoir. <laughs> <laughs> it would take
2: a long time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.